everyone. Welcome back to the Let's Talk podcast with me and David and Tay. We're going to be covering another Steven Spielberg film, and we're going to be talking about Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, or just Raiders of the Lost Ark, like I like to still call it. I know that they changed it, but it's still just Raiders of the Lost Ark to me, directed by Steven Spielberg, released in 1981, starring Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. And David, what do you think of this movie? Yeah, I'm a big fan of the Indiana Jones series. There's certain movies that you grow up watching and not appreciating, but loving. You go back to them as an adult and you realize just how good movies they actually are. I agree. And this is definitely one of those movies. I remember, I actually, it's funny because a lot of people that I've spoken to have said that this movie has an age grade which I find incredible because I actually love this movie more now than I did when I first saw it. Yeah, it's very shocking. Actually, um, in what way is it I think it has in the age wheel? Yeah, well, one of those people's Matt. Matt doesn't think this. He's like, I don't get it. He's like, he liked, he like you thought that Temple of Doom was the best one. So I actually think that Last Crusade is the best one. And it's funny because we're talking about Raiders, which I think we both can agree is probably the best made one. Yeah, watching this movie again last week, I currently watched it because I've watched them again recently um, and I've watched the movies with my daughter and she loves Indiana Jones as well. So I really gave it a good watch the other night. I was actually surprised at how much I was really enjoying it again, even though I've watched it about four or five times in the last few years again. It definitely is the best in the trilogy in my opinion. Campbell of Doom is my absolute favourite, but I think that Raiders is definitely the best movie. It is. It's just, it's a Steven Spielberg masterpiece. And we were just talking before we started rolling about the making of documentaries of that are on the 4K discs or on the Blu-ray discs. They've been, you know, recycled for a while now. But just seeing Steven Spielberg and how he said that he's already filmed this in his head. He had a line in one of these. And I'm yeah. like, ah, that's just ridiculous that he could see the panning shots, the shadows, the silhouettes all in his head before he shoots it. And he, I mean, he had the storyboards in front of him, but he knew exactly yes. what he wanted to do. And it's just incredible to me because I, I never realized when you watch the movie, you don't think about how hard that must have been, but mm-hmm. really, that's incredible. Yeah, I think like most people, the audience doesn't think about how much thought actually goes in uh, the process of directing a movie. And of course, Spielberg, as we have already discussed, is one of the best, if not the best at it. And I think that um, the last few weeks, we've showed our appreciation for Coach and Founders. You know, I've showed my love for Jaws. Raiders of the Lost Ark to me is the movie that Steven Spielberg was born to make. These were the type of movies that he was actually born to make. This movie is just a pure escapism, pure entertainment. It's pure popcorn. It's what you actually go to the cinema for. I can't fault it. It's exactly. It was kind of like he was building up to this. We should probably talk that George Lucas is a producer on it, a creator on it. He was, um, we talked on the last episode about how him and Steven Spielberg were in Hawaii. George Lucas mm-hmm. was worried about uh, Star Wars and how it was going to be received. He expected a negative reaction. He just wanted to get away with his buddy, you know, his wife, his buddy. And they went to Hawaii and they started talking about their love of cereals from when they were kids. And they took, came up with an idea. Well, I guess it was really George Lucas's idea that they kind of spun and weaved together. But they came up with Indiana Smith. You know, and that would eventually become Indiana Jones. I always find it funny. Imagine this was Indiana Smith. (laughs) How do you think I would have been dying? I don't think we would have four sequels if it was Indiana Smith. Indiana Jones (laughs) just rolls off the... I mean, we might have because having Harrison Ford in the lead is, you know, he's very charming. And it's always even funny when you find out that it's supposed to be Mr. Magnum P.I. himself, Tom Selleck, (laughs) as the lead originally. I sometimes think about that when I'm watching, like, the Mabinovs. 
what kind of movie would it have been with a Tom Selleck? And um, who was it was uh, auditioning for Marion? It was uh, Sean Young. Yeah. It wasn't even supposed to be Karen Allen, which is crazy too, which I can't, uh, I can't see it. And I really feel like Karen Allen is a very undervalued actress in this franchise because, you know, I think Last Crusade is better. I prefer the father-son aspect to him having a love interest, but I really do love Karen Allen and I love it when she comes back in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And I don't know, I know you haven't seen the fifth one yet, so I don't want to spoil it too much, but let's just say she has a cameo. And I just, I always found her charming, even in like movies like Cruising and <laughs> which is, yeah. how do you find her charming in that? But Scrooge, she's got those big <laughs> eyes and I think she's perfect as, because she's strong in this movie. Yeah, do you know what? I actually think she's absolutely beautiful. And she's absolutely beautiful for me as well. Oh, yeah, Until gorgeous. It catches my eye when, when I'm watching her on, on screen. She's very, very beautiful at the moment. Over the years with Campbell of Doom and the criticisms with Campbell of Doom, people comparing her as a strong woman to Kate Capshaw in the second movie, oh. which I will defend Kate Capshaw if we ever do Campbell of Doom. But the point I'm trying to get to is that in this movie, Denise starts off strong, but she's not as strong or spacey in my opinion as the movie goes along no you're and right I about think that. that this is kind of built up a wee bit of a myth over the years because of kate capshaw yeah kate capshaw in temple of doom is a damsel in distress the entire movie i i'm pretty sure her script just said scream the entire time <laughs> but yeah she has her moments where I don't really, like, get too frustrated with her. Like, I mean, I've heard people bash her, and, you know, I don't think she was that bad. That was just the direction she no. was given. But you're right in the sense that Karen Allen starts out really strong in this movie, but she does end up as a damsel in distress by the time we get to, like, the second half of the film. Um, she still yeah. kind of finds her way out of things. Like, the drinking contest, she has two of those in those, this movie, and I love those scenes. A like, woman who can yeah. drink like that, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's right. She does have a, a, a food drinking competitions in it. How many times did it take you to watch Indiana Jones and realize that the other person he, he she was having a drinking contest with was also a woman? Because I didn't realize that the first couple times I watched it. That no, I didn't even notice that. I didn't realize she's not an attractive lady. That's for sure. <laughs> See, it's not too busy looking at Carnal, and that's why. She... <laughs> yeah, you don't think that this little twig of a woman could compete with? Uh, something that looks like it's right out of the Goonies, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, that's what I was going to say when you said about liking her in this movie and bringing her back. Um, do you know that's one of the things I actually do like in this series is the fact that they bring the characters back? Because I, I always felt as if that it was a serial where the main star was in Diana Jones and basically as we move into film after film after film, we meet a different villain, we meet a different woman um who has to be different than before has maybe has to have a different personality or are, are causing these different kind of challenges and they kind of done that with the love interest for the first three movies but that's why i do make her come on coming back in the, the fourth one yeah i i agree i i think that it would have i would have been fine if she didn't come back but i was glad to see her if that makes sense like i i wouldn't have been yeah. upset like I don't think Temple of Doom is the best Indiana Jones. I think it's probably the third best in my opinion, but I appreciate so much that they didn't try and rehash the movie. I think that that is, yeah. you just don't see that with sequels. Even to this day, it's like if something works, stick to the formula. People just want more of the same and that's it. And they did that in this franchise because The Last Crusade, which is my favorite, 
is basically just Raiders of the Lost Ark again. They did all the yes. same tropes. Everything is basically leading up to the same exact third act. I love it. <laughs> you know, I can't sit here and say I don't, but I can really appreciate them actually trying to do something different with Temple of Doom and going and changing the tone yeah. of the whole movie. Yeah, I'm either on the subject of Peter Capshaw. I was maybe going to save this for if we ever done Temple of Doom. These movies were based on like, the serials from like, what, 1930s and 1940s. And generally, it was just about the hero going up against the bad guy and saving up the girl. You know what I mean? And usually, she was a damsel in distress. Now, in the current climate, that's not seen as PG. But um, I think what they were going for was kind of the opposite of Carlisle, who um, was kind of a very kind of feisty, starts off very feisty with, with Indiana Jones. He's kind of met at match with her, you know, when she, he walks into the bar and she punches him and they have this argument. But in the second movie, I think that Willie Scott, she's very impaled. You know, she's um, a movie star. She's not used to being in the jungle, never mean being lured into a pit of lava. Yeah. And eating so monkey I, brain. <laughs> yeah. So I can understand why people were probably annoyed with all the screaming and all, but I think that maybe we missed the point of the character. Um, but uh, on hindsight, on retrospect, people may say, well, maybe we should go in a different direction because it did annoy people. Yeah, I, I'll admit, she the, the constant screaming does get under my skin. But, but on, at the end of the day, uh, Steven Spielberg loved her enough to marry her. So, <laughs> I yeah, guess. Well, that's one of the micro parts of the making of of Campbell of Doom, when, when Steven Spielberg addresses the controversy and says, but I got the girl, and he didn't. Yeah, that's true. He did. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I can't really sell it too short on that. I appreciate that. Yeah, you know what? You've met your wife. They're still together to this day. So, at the end of the day, yeah. I'm sure he doesn't have any regrets about that or how she was cast. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. he's happy he was. She was. <laughs> I'm sure he was, yeah. And he's, they're still together this day. Yeah, that's incredible. One thing I just realized recently, and I, I mean, it's I'm just stupid for it, is that Temple of Doom actually came out before Ghostbusters. So I just always think it's funny seeing Dan Aykroyd at the beginning of Temple of Doom, which I think was just on a deal or something, a friendship deal, like something with Spielberg that he only appears in that. I can't remember what it was, but I remember reading somewhere that there was an agreement and that's why he appears in the movie. Yeah, and it's done on a wrong set. I mean, you wouldn't even know it's him. Yeah. Once you know it's him and you hear him talking, you're like, yeah, that's Dan Aykroyd. It's the voice. Like, you would never know. No. Yeah. I, I never, I'm telling you, the first few times I watched that movie, I didn't realize. I, I eventually did because he does have a very distinct voice, but I just always think yeah. it's funny. It's such a small role and it's because he really just hadn't, like, blown up like Ghostbusters like he was on SNL but he blew up once they got to freaking Ghostbusters that's when he became a household name yeah and I'm sure I'm sure people know him from Blues Brothers and things like that as well just before Ghostbusters but that was probably his most famous movie up until then yeah Ghostbusters blew up as you say yeah Blues Brothers I yeah I shouldn't sell Blues Brothers too short Blues Brothers is a classic especially in the music genre yeah Blues Brothers 2000 eh Do you know, I've only seen, I've seen Blues Brothers once years ago, and I wasn't too fussed on it, so I've never gone back to watch it again. Ah, same with me. I've only seen it once. I never even, it came out on 4K a few years ago, and it's always on sale for like five bucks, and I never really want to go back to it. I don't know, I just, I'm not a big musical guy to begin with, and that yeah. one, it's just, it, that's really what it is, it's just about getting to the next song. They just have in-between yeah, parts again. Yeah, it's a really good soundtrack. Yeah, it's good, but that's, the whole movie is just getting to the next song. <laughs> so, but do you know Steven Spielberg makes a cameo on Blues Brothers? Is that probably, that's probably what, I guess, led to that, right? <laughs> <laughs> it could be, maybe that's what it was. It just does talk about Blues Brothers. I remember he makes a cameo appearance in Blues Brothers. He's good friends with John Landis. 
Oh. Okay. Yeah, what happened? That's terrible about what happened with that. Yeah. yeah, and that, and actually, I think that also had a negative effect on uh, him and Eddie Murphy's relationship because I think then he came back for one of his movies. It might have been, I don't think it was coming to America. It might have been coming to America, and then they had a real falling out. And the only reason that Eddie Murphy was fighting for John Landis is because he was coming off of what happened in Twilight Zone, and he felt like he needed a break. But I guess they kind of ruined their relationship too. So. Yeah, I think the, the court case was around then as well, the 80s, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, what was that movie, 87, 86? Yeah, and then he got went on trial. I mean, that's a tragedy. Mm-hmm. That's what would happen in that movie. Most tragic. Yeah, it's actually, but, um, it makes it tough to watch so it. I, uh, yeah, it makes it tough to watch it. You know what? It's a movie I've never actually seen. I've only seen it once, and that, that section's in the movie still. And it just, it makes it rough. <laughs> it, it does. Because like, yeah. you know what happened, and you know kids died, and you're like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, you know what? It's the one of the ones I've been like, I wouldn't mind watching, probably because of what happened behind that. I don't mean just that scene or the, uh, that part of the movie. I want to watch the full movie. Um, I'm not sure if what happened on it had an impact on how well it was um, received when it was, when it was released. I don't know. I think it still made money. Like it's still remembered pretty fondly. Like it's good. It's a good movie. There's um, it takes a lot of the stuff like from the show. Like there was, it was just bits from the show that they uh just reimagined for the modern day. Like the William Shatner plane one is redone in that. Mm-hmm. So that's like probably one of the most famous ones from the original show. Which I always just think of Ace Ventura when he's making fun of William Shatner. <laughs> There's someone on the wing. Some thing. <laughs> there. yeah there's something on the wing some thing <laughs> so here, getting back to me and um, marion so so that point i just want to bring up about marion um there's been a bit of controversy around her age Yes. Was supposed to be a governor. Now I know why her dad hates him yeah. so much. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's confirmed of what age she was. She was supposed to be around, what, 15? Yeah, and I really just think this was an... I mean, I don't know for sure, but my guess is just it was just something that was overlooked when they were writing. That's the only way I could think of it, because I don't think Karen Allen is too much younger than Harrison Ford. But the way that they describe the ages in the movie, it makes it sound worse than I think that they intended. Yeah, and I'm just kind of wondering, is it, was it done on purpose because Envy's supposed to be like this anti-hero? You know, he's not a completely good guy. You know, he's not holier than the, you know what I mean? He's, uh, or is it just um, kind of a product of the pain? I don't mean the, the, the 70s or the 80s. What I mean is that the film is set in the 30s. That's a possibility, it's, too. It's also then gives an explanation of why he fell out with Maureen's dad and why he hasn't been there in 10 years. I'm just I'm kind of curious of the why that they went down that road. I'm always been wondering that, too. I always just chalked it up. It had to be overlooked because, like, especially, like, over the last, like, 10 years, it gets brought up all the time. And I've heard people say, like, it makes it tougher to watch the movie. But I never really thought about it until people brought it up because it was the past. And I just never really, like, thought too much into it. Just It was a passing line. And really, that's all it was to me. So once it yeah. kind of got blown up, I was like, I guess it, I, I understand why people would be upset with that. But, I mean, I just feel like it was a mistake and not really intention. I don't think the intentions were for you to overthink that, but that's just my yeah. guess. Yeah. And this age of the internet, you know, once somebody puts something on there and anybody can comment, it becomes then a, maybe a bigger talking point. 
but maybe it would have, wouldn't have been if there was no Ethernet. Probably. Yeah, that's the best way. That's usually how that stuff works out. I'm sure that, like, they put it in there. Maybe they even noticed in post, and they thought no one's going to dig too deep into this. They didn't realize that, you know, 40 years later, that it'd be all over message boards. <laughs> <laughs> but, and what do you think about Harrison Ford and what he actually brings to the role? Because remember, we talked earlier there about Tom Sally. And it'd be interesting to see what, 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 what kind of character you would have brought. But I actually think on what's name Nathan said, I think that the, um, Harrison Ford brings an awful lot for this character to bring it to length. Yes, I agree. Uh, I don't. I actually like Tom Selleck. I don't know how he would have done in this role, but I've actually kind of always been a fan of the guy. I grew up with the movie Three Men and a Baby. I don't know if you remember that one, but yes, do yeah. <laughs> I was a big fan of that, and he's in that, and like a bunch of other stuff. I actually gone back and watched Magnum PI. I don't know what their names are. But uh, the, the two squirrels, they actually just had a remake come out like last year. Right. But they're dressed up like Magnum P.I. and Indiana Jones. So it's like they were leaning Jeez. into that fact that he was supposed to originally be Indiana. I don't think, though, that he would have done as well as Harrison Ford. I agree with you. I think Harrison Ford does bring a lot to the role. And the behind the scenes stuff really just shows you like how committed he was to this character. Like all the rehearsal stuff that they were showing... I'm like, wow, they get, they really undersell how good of like an actor Harrison Ford is. Yeah, he had stuntmen for certain stuff, yeah. but the hand, the hand stuff, like what, uh, what's his name? Paul Roach, I think. What is it? Pa- oh, Pat Roach. Pat, Pat Roach, I think it's, it's called, yeah. Yeah, and he, how close you have to get without actually hitting each other. Like, I, I'd be worried. Like, I mean, he's putting in the work and everything. I, I agree with you. I actually think uh, Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones is like what Robert England is to Freddy Krueger. I, I, I just think that he, he made it his own. I mean, it's okay writing the character down on a page. Um, and of course, then they get more with Ruben to fit the character out. I mean, I know with Steven Spielberg actually drew a sketch of what, he, what Indiana should look like. And then uh, the girl that actually was, I can't remember her name, is tasked of, of finding this stuff. She worked with Carson Ford and um, given it its final look, that, he, that it's the jacket was all kind of scrubbed up and and uh, rough and the hat and all that they've ever been through. A lot of adventures and stuff like that. So they worked on that together. And I'm not saying that Tom Sally wouldn't have been able to do that, but I just think that Harrison Ford brought an awful lot to the to the look and the and the, the feel of the character. Um how he should act in certain situations, as you said, or in seen in the making of even in the facing some of the he was having and Spielberg was allowing them to kind of play around with it a little bit. Yeah, and uh, that's another thing about Spielberg, uh speaking of him and how he interacts with Harrison Ford, but everybody, it's like he has, like, such a lighthearted nature with him. Like, he makes his sets seem like everyone's having a good time. Everyone seems pretty relaxed. Even though it's a huge production. And that's one thing that Steven Spielberg and not many directors can do is the amount of people that he's in charge of and that you have to get all these yeah. shots. Like, I, I was thinking about it, I'm like, I don't know if I could do that. Like, I'm pretty good yeah. at, like, adjusting to stuff. But you have to have all that going on in your mind and still be friendly with everybody is... I don't know. Like that's that's really hard, and I think that's something that people don't really bring up enough about Steven Spielberg is how he just handles these big productions. I mean, obviously he's known for yeah. making these blockbusters, but how hard these are to actually make and then come together and become a classic film—it's unbelievable. Yeah, when you think about all the people that Spielberg's worked in, uh, worked with over his career, and I haven't heard one person say a bad word about him, and it would be very easy to come out and say, you know, he's this, he's that, to make a name for yourself. That one person has said a bad word about him, and and you think when he made Raiders, he was like in his early thirties. He made Raiders of the Lost Ark, and as you say, thinking about all these different personalities and all these different people, you mentioned earlier about people saying that the, the, the film is aged that well. In regards to 
special effects and things like that, I think it holds up really well. I think that some of the stunts in the movie are still unbelievable. I mean, they're all done real. Everything's, you know, practical there. But the thing was, was that with this movie, it was the first movie that he actually worked fast pace on um, to get that kind of serial feel. I think that's what he said it'd be a conference, and he done it. And I think that's probably why the likes of, I think we've touched on this before, even of the Crystal Skull, and maybe even, although he didn't direct the new one, but which is where the new ones kind of suffer, because they're kind of too polished. Yeah, I, I agree, actually. And that, that's actually one thing I pointed out when I was watching it last night, and Faith was sitting next to me. What it is, is like how they were shooting it, and we talk about this all the time, because I know you agree with me, like not having CGI is actually better. But like on the one shot when they were showing it, and it's in the bar, and they have fire right behind them. And he's like, oh, yeah. make sure you light the fires here. And they're like, you know, inches away from it. Like, that just makes it feel more real because it is real. And they don't, yeah. you just lose that with movies like Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And that's one reason why I like, like the first half of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull kind of looks like Raiders. Like they kind of have the set design and then they just went all CGI. I mean, there's CGI in the first half too. Believe me, the nuclear bomb stuff is insane. But once you get to like the second half and it's all CGI and you just know that they're not acting against real things, I, you lose something. I feel like it makes it harder on the yeah. actors. Yeah, I think so too. But they were showing that behind the scenes of him in the bar and the fires are around. All I could think of was think how hot they are standing there trying to act. If he coming off, that must be unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, and even acting in the desert, what would they say? It was like all yeah. close to 130 degrees. You see George Lucas with yeah. the thing covering his neck, the uh, Star Wars hat. And I'm like, yeah. you know, like these people, that's why in the movie, when you look at it, they don't have to fake the sweat. They don't have to go put water on their face. They're really sweating because it's fucking hot. <laughs> like, <laughs> and and Speedbird's being asked questions about the production. And he actually says, it's hard for me to think when 130 degrees <laughs> is bouncing down off the top of my head. And... um like you say, they're actually out there suffering. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've heard the stories about how um, they all got, I think it was dysentery uh, on the yes. set. And except for Steven, because uh, Steven brought his own food. He was living off of SpaghettiOs and stuff like that. But the rest of yeah. them got really sick. And that's actually how he ended up with one of the most famous scenes in the movie, which is uh, him just, uh, you know, the one guy with the swords going all off. You think they're setting up and they had planned uh, a big fight scene. Harrison yeah. Ford was one of the actors who got sick and he just couldn't handle it. And he's like, how about I just pull out a gun and shoot him? First of all, that's a genius idea. It's amazing that no one thought that up. But that's kind of how movie magic happens is you think on your feet and you think, okay, well, we're in a bad situation. I just want to go lay down. Why don't we just make this quick? <laughs> and yeah, I mean, that has been spoofed and satired how many times since? <laughs> and it's one of the most memorable and funny moments in the movie. It's amazing. It's yeah. like, okay, you solved the problem pretty quickly. You put that guy down. <laughs> yeah, and Speedberg actually had... Uh, tinned food imported from uh, Britain. I think that's what he said. So he was eating that when everybody else gets sick. Yep. And I was surprised to see all that making up. It's strange of them actually rehearsing that scene with the swordsman yeah, I... before he decided to shoot him. I was actually wondering that, actually, when because they didn't bring that up in the making of about how everyone got sick. That's something that came out later. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if when they put that making of documentary together, if that hadn't gone out public and maybe they didn't want it to. I, I'm not too sure, because if you, you've seen older making of documentaries, they're more promotion. Um, this yeah. didn't feel like that, but they definitely didn't bring up anything negative during the making of. Yeah, that's right. No, they didn't mention anything about them getting sick or anything, just about the heat and speedboard pretty much saying in that older documentary that I think it's scheduled about five or six weeks out in the desert and he says we're done four so he was ahead schedule 
that, that was one of the things actually I have a, a book here it's um, the making of the Indiana Jones trilogy I read it a few years ago I couldn't actually believe this with George Lucas and Spielberg decided to make Indiana Jones and Lucas went off and got financed for it and he went to Paramount and they didn't want Steven Spielberg to direct it uh, they said anybody about Spielberg and the reason being is because all his movies before that would go over budget and would over schedule. They said he was too expensive. So George Lucas says, the way we're at issue on this, you know, I'm only going to make the movie if Steven directs it. I'm not going to go back on that. So he had to go back to Spielberg and say to him, you have to do this within budget. You have to do it within schedule. George Lucas, he should look as he would do it, but George Lucas is Adam, you have to do it. You can't go over it. You know, I've vouched for you. You have to do it. And that's why he was so proud in the making of that documentary when he says, oh, we're scattered five weeks today, but we're doing it four. <laughs> and you heard him saying earlier on in the making of that documentary saying about like, um, how much fun he had making Jewel and how much fun he had making Sugarland Express because he'd done it in 95 days or 75 days and so maybe 55 days. Yeah. Because obviously we know the Jaws and Close Encounters, and I think even 1941, well overrun and went well over budget. And I think that Spielberg ever since has never, ever over budget or over schedule yeah you know it's that's funny just looking at the body of work of steven spielberg you brought that up because you're exactly right i was gonna bring that up to you because he made duel in 16 days sugarland in 55 and then yeah he started to uh you know go over budget and had problems all the way through 1941 and 1941 was a failure altogether but then he yeah he did this one in 74 days and i and i agree from what i've heard he's like one of the most like consistently under budget under time directors like yeah. he it's like he mastered it and he brought up in the making of documentary how he pl- does better pre-production now he has everything all laid out and ready to go and yeah. how important pre-production is and that yeah. is something that is very important to filmmaking that people do not bring up is like you got to have everything set up schedule everything have people there to like yes. make sure everything looks consistent you know like one thing i thought was a little fascinating was like having the costume designer talk in the harris and like make sure the shirt's hanging out because that's how it was in the like that's that stuff is all fascinating to me that someone has to just keep track of how how his clothes were um, you know what that's one thing that hitchcock used to do hitchcock used to meticulously you know plan out pre-production apparently Hitchcock actually hated shooting. That was the worst part for him. Really? Hated it. <laughs> yeah. He had everything uh, storyboarded down to a team, and he never used to fill them more than what he needed. And the reason being was that he didn't want anybody coming along and re-editing his movie form. So he used to do the bare minimum. So you could only edit it a certain way. So that was his way around of saying, I have the final say. Born when he was shooting, and then he enjoyed editing. So that's the way he was. And I think that Spielberg learned a lot a lot on readers again, just how you can still work fast and get what you want. I remember a story Matt Damon, I seen a story Matt Damon was telling recently about um saving private women. And it was a scene we were doing and they couldn't get it right, him and Tom Hanks and a few other ones. And he says, uh Spielberg spent I don't know how long he says he spent a certain amount of time on it. And Matt Damon knew it still wasn't right. And Spielberg went, babe, let's move on to the next shot. And apparently Matt Damon was really annoyed. And he said to him, we didn't get what we want, what we needed. And Spielberg says, we got enough. And he says, but Stephen, it's not the way it should be. We're not spend more time. And apparently Spielberg says, then I could spend another hour on this and it would be different. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we just move on and we'll set up the next shot. And oh, Matt Damon said afterwards, 
he, he understood what he meant later on. That's true. I mean, that that's just something that people like, especially Matt Damon at that per time. He's a young actor. He probably thinks that he knows everything, and he's dealing with a guy who's at that point. What is that? They're probably filming in '97. He made 27 years ago. He made or not 27 years. 22 years ago, he made Jaws. So he's like, I think I know a little bit about production by now and what can and can't yeah. be done. So <laughs> you know, he's, he's on location in Ireland. Actually, um, a lot of same program. He's on location. Doing like these beach war things with like hundreds of extras, you know, the sunlight's probably going down. And Matt Damon's saying, Come on, let's spend another hour on this. And he's saying, Listen, that got something else to do. Right? <laughs> we've got, we've got, we've got it. He's probably thinking, Look, fix it in the attic, you yeah, know? Exactly. I mean, the power of editing is powerful. You could fix a lot in editing. I don't think people realize. I saw something really cool yesterday, actually, speaking of editing, and you might appreciate this. In the movie Casino, there is a dissolve in the early in the movie when Joe Pesci and De Niro are sitting in the car, and it's so small that if unless you're looking for it, you don't see it because they combine two takes, and it, it's incredible when you find that stuff. Oh, out. Yes. It's a very slight dissolve, and it's because it literally just almost is identical to the take before. But I guess they liked certain movements, so they were like, "Okay, can we combine it?" And that's something that a good editor can do to make it unnoticeable because people don't realize. I mean. Think about it, you're cutting between close-up, far away. You got to get it all together and make it look like one shot. But when you film it, that's not how it's filmed. <laughs> exactly. So I just always find that stuff incredible. And, you know, the fact you need a director who has the vision in their head of what the movie's supposed to look like at the very end. And that just makes the production that much more quicker, easier, and then post-production quicker and easier. And that's how you come in under budget. If you don't plan it ahead of time and you're just winging it. It's not going to come out good. <laughs> yep, exactly. I always find that to be incredibly fascinating. Speaking of Paramount, um, do you like the transitions that they start the movies from the into the Paramount logo? From the Paramount? yeah, I think it's brilliant, and I, and I actually found it remarkable that he asked uh, Frank Marshall to go and find a mountain that looks like the Paramount mountain, <laughs> and he went, "No problem." And then he found one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I remember the first time I saw that, I actually thought that, um, you know, that was how the Paramount logo was created. It was like, I was like, oh, is that what it is? And then they just used it going forward. I was like, I wonder if that's how they did it. But obviously not. I was just an idiot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, um, I see that Alfred Molina's story again, when he was talking about the Spaders. Yeah. I, I thought it was very funny. And he was talking about Spielberg saying, look scared, look scared. And he doesn't stand. He says, I am bloody scared. <laughs> <laughs> It is funny that Alfred Molina pops up early in this movie. I, I, was this his first movie or was one of his earlier movies? Oh, I don't know. I think it might have been. Yeah. I think he said it was. Yeah, because he was really, I mean, it's 1981. He's really young here. It's and honestly, that whole opening scene, perfect introduction to Indy. I mean, you have him in the shadows, come out of it. I, I really think still that Temple of Doom has the better opening sequence, but I really do love Raiders. Yeah, I love that the Raiders open on as well. It just got, he's very mysterious at first. You know, you don't know who is this guy. And then obviously when he goes into the cave and uh, he talks about his competitor. Yeah. I can't remember his name, the one that he's actually killed. Yeah, that guy. I mean, that's, and also, again, brutal deaths. I mean, it, it starts off pretty dark. PG movie. Um, You know, obviously Temple of Doom helped introduce PG-13, but... This one, I mean, that guy dies, and then you see all the skeletons and the great sound yeah. effect, too, that they have. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, and then obviously the spiders. Everything is all just scary in there, in that in that temple. And then the big boulder is very famous, which is practically done also, which is awesome. I love the opening sequence. And then the plane, we find out Indy hates snakes. It's just a perfect opening sequence. You learn a lot about the character. And that has to be one of my favorite names. Uh, <laughs> when he's in the plane and he says to him, you know why I hate snakes? So he said, why is there a snake? Back here, and he says, "That's my pet snake." Uh, he names him. I can't remember the name of the snake. He says, "You know why I hate snakes?" And he says, "I've come on, I have a bit of backbone." <laughs> yeah, he's just talking to Indiana Jones like that. <laughs> I have a bit of backbone after what he's just went through. But I think that's Frank Marshall playing that plane. I'm pretty sure it is. I think I, they gave him small little roles since he was there. I just said, hey, plot. I mean, he's not like, you know, completely like closed up or on or anything like that. So you can get away with it. Plus, yeah. he's wearing like that, you know, the hat and everything. I would never mm-hmm. in a million years, by the way, get in a plane like that. A two seater plane up in the air like that. I'd be <laughs> petrified. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That is that. Yeah. That's insanity. I don't even like getting on a commercial flight. <laughs> getting on a two seat. Yeah, with, 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 uh, <laughs> you're inside with like a lot of space and stuff. John, that's you're definitely not going to get that really small cockpit anyway. No, I mean it's probably not running great either. It didn't look like it was. <laughs> <laughs> not... well at least there's no chickens on this one that is true I mean I wouldn't even get in the Zeppelin in freaking the third one either I would never <laughs> but those are pretty much just out of commission anyway I think there's only like three left in the world or something Zeppelins? Uh, yeah I don't think there's too many of those left alright okay I didn't realize well I suppose um, Max Zorn blew one up didn't he? Yes. Well, uh, there's the big one, the famous one that is uh that was on the cover of one of the Led Zeppelin albums. I that was a big famous one. Uh, I can't yeah, remember. it's the Hindenburg. The Hindenburg, yeah. Which can you? Yeah. Because that thing crashed so slow, like it's it's crazy what happens with because that you know they, they don't really go too fast. They're pretty slow. <laughs> but, yeah, that's right. I don't know much about that disaster, but I think there was a film made about it in the mid seventies when they started bringing out all these disaster movies. Oh, and yeah. they made a movie about it. Yeah. They made a, I mean, they made that. The 70s was probably the leading time for disaster movies. You get the Towering Inferno. Uh, the, what's the boat one that starts with a peep? The Poseidon re- Adventure. Yeah, they remade it with Kurt Russell in the 90s. Um, Earthquake. Earthquake was a big one. Airport. Airport. Which, which eventually became Airplane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, which is, we were talking, one of the greatest comedies ever. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely, it's very funny. Yeah, so, but back to Indiana. Yeah, back to Indiana. I was going to say, so you were saying about how kind of gruesome that this movie is as well. I, I actually think, that, not that it bothers me, you know, I, I like a good action movie and I like a bit of balance and some fights and all, but like you say, when he fights the big Nazi henchman at the plane as well, when he dies in the... the propellers of a plane i mean it's still that's very gruesome but one bit that i think very valid as well is when indiana jones takes over the the vehicle with the arc on the back of it oh yeah and the nazi comes down and shoots him in the arm and then kind of like throws him through the window and it's probably the best stunt of the whole movie if not one of the best stunts of all time but indy actually has to go under the truck I always am fascinated by that one, and I read that I read that how they did this one. I'm sure you already know, but like how they dug a trench underneath the truck, and that's how they're able to do that. 
But yeah. yeah, and actually, this is what people complain about is they feel like these action sequences go on too long. And that's just because they all have ADD nowadays and action sequences have to have 46 jump cuts in it to make it feel like an action sequence. Whereas this oh, one, okay. the action sequences, they kind of stay still on it. They let it play out. You know, they're throwing punches back and forth. Great sound effects. And it's kind of like, okay, they're just taking their time with it. It might feel like a seven-minute sequence that today might be edited down to like three and a half minutes. And I think that's why people complain about the pacing of this movie. Because to me, I personally think that Raiders, the first three Indiana Jones movies, are all paced pretty perfectly. Yeah, no, listen, I think that these first three movies, to me, are almost perfect. There's certain things that you can kind of pick out and go, don't like this or don't like that. Or like, for example, you know, the third one to me is a bit too comedic. But I still love the movie. People don't like the second one because they think it's too dark. That's what I love about it. It's more like a horror movie. You know? Very much. And that's why I think the first one is the best one. Not only it's probably the best later than three, but I do think it's the best pace. Um, I think the stunts are probably the best in the first one. I think a lot of those stunts and special effects hold up the best out of the three movies as well. But what I actually love uh, watching it again is that I can understand what pe- people's frustration maybe thinking that whole scene where he's under, goes on, goes on, goes on. But when I was watching it again, I was actually looking forward to when Indy actually trains back up into that truck and does the exact same thing to the Nazi with the Nazi just done to him. When I he kicks him through the door <laughs> and finds his head and then throws him out the window. <laughs> I, I I love that one too. I do. Because he, he thought he got away yeah. and he's like, oh, then he jumps back in there and he kicks him out. <laughs> <laughs> he does the exact same thing. But he only gets you. Obviously, Andy's the hero, you know, as we say, we want to be. You know what I mean? We love seeing him kick ass. So when he gets shot, you know, at the arm, obviously he's a bit injured. So. It's not a full par, so that's why your man gets the batter of him. That's why the Nazi gets the batter of him and throws him out. Yeah, so I love how Andy grabs the, um, what, what would you call that in the front of the banner? Uh, and it breaks off. Oh, symbol. I guess the, we'll just call it the symbol. They don't put those on cars anymore. <laughs> no, they don't put them on anymore, but that breaks off. So that's why he falls down and he, he tries to hold on to the, the grid at the front and it starts coming off. So he goes under. <laughs> but when he throws the Nazi at, the Nazi tries to hold on and it just totally comes off his time. But I love how the truck actually runs over and you see his body kind of bounce up. Yeah, I love that. You know what happened. <laughs> but I was going to say that Indiana Jones, one guy, stop fighting. One thing about Indiana Jones is he is, uh, He's always getting his ass kicked. That's one thing about him. Like, he's not, like, an overpowering hero. He's not like what 80s, like, heroes are, like Arnold, like, mowing people down. He's never, ever in too much danger. Andy is a real guy. Like, he's a teacher. He wants to bring stuff to the museum. That's, like, it seems, like, so simple. I always find it so funny that, because people wanted to be archaeologists and stuff after these movies, because they thought that like, it's, like, what Indiana Jones does. But he just kind of got into these crazy situations. Yeah. He's a racking ball. He, he doesn't care. <laughs> What he, what he wrecks or who he hurts just to get that one thing that he's looking for. And you're right, that is the thing about Indiana Jones. He's the near, he's the almost guy. He, every time he's in a situation, he always kind of like gets, gets fucked over. Yeah, he's always getting hurt. He always ends up losing it and having to get it back. He thinks he finally came out on top, but it never works out in the very end. Like when he's a teacher and he's wearing the glasses, the regular suit, you just don't believe that that's the guy who's going to be out in the woods shooting his gun, not in the woods, but you know, in the desert shooting his gun, 
firing it off and fighting with all the Nazis. He just doesn't seem like that type of guy. And that's why when he is yeah. out there, it feels like a regular guy. Yeah, exactly. And that's why they call these um, artifacts MacGuffins in oh, the movies. Because 100%. It's, it's not really about them. The story isn't actually about really the arc. That's no. not what it's about. Although, one thing is, is like, you brought this up earlier, how Indy isn't like a clean, squeaky clean hero or anything like that, because when he has the chance to save Marion and he just didn't destroy the Ark, he can't do it. He can't bring himself to do it. So it's like, do you care as much about Marion as you say you do? Or do you just kind of using her a little bit? Because he doesn't save her when he had the opportunity earlier, too. He just, he's like, I have my chance here to get the Ark. I'm not doing it. So, yeah, that's right. You know, like, I, I, because he goes to save her and she says that we're going mad looking for you. And he thinks, well, if I take her, they're going to know I'm here. Mm-hmm. So let her stay with him. And they could be doing anything to her. <laughs> and they do eventually come in and try and force her. Yeah, they do try. I mean, luckily he showed up, and but still he got out of there and left her. I'm like, that's messed up, man. <laughs> and then when she's actually throwing in the tomb with the snakes... All he can think about is, oh, what were you doing with Bella? Yeah. So he starts to get jealous. He's not even happy that she's a lay. Uh, you know what I mean? Or did it do anything to you? Did it hurt you? He's like, oh, where did you get this? The dress? Yeah. Did he give you that? <laughs> he's a very, very flawed individual. Yeah. He, you know, he's, he's, he is kind of a wee bit of all about himself. He's, he, he's definitely a selfish person, but he also does care, but he cares about certain people and certain things. Like, he definitely cares about Sala. He cares, you know, obviously about his friends at the university. He does have people he cares about, but he just gets... This is the thing he loves most in the world, is archaeology. Finding these items to bring back to, like, he feels like they're more important. It's history, and really, he's always just had this connection more to history than he actually has to other human beings. So, like, yeah, that arc does mean the world to him. You notice who one of the CIA guys was? Who comes in to... Um, um, ask him to go and find the, the art. It's, uh, what's his name? It's, it, is it Warren Beatty? Oh, no, it wasn't no, Warren. it's not Warren Beatty. It's not Warren Beatty. Who was it? I know who it is. I know it's the heavier. You're thinking of Ned Beatty? Ned Beatty, yeah. But who no, was... it's not Ned Beatty. Uh, you know what? I can't even remember his real name. But... <laughs> I, the heavier set guy, right? With the glasses and the mustache? Yeah. Yeah, what is his name? I'm going to have to say. <laughs> I, 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 I'll, I'll do an impression of someone, and you can tell me this. Get me Lieutenant Eckhart. It's Lieutenant Eckhart. Oh, it is. Oh, my God. It's Lieutenant. It is the the heavy. That's who it is. The guy from freaking Star Wars, too. Uh, what's he's it? in Star Wars, and he's in Batman. It's Lieutenant Eckhart. Yeah. Don't go printing this in your paper, Knox. <laughs> he's too slipped on a banana peel. <laughs> What was his, he was Porkins, I think, in Star Wars, which is ridiculous that they named him Porkins, but, you know, I guess, I get yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. You know. So he, he plays the, the CIA guy uh, at the start. I recognized him, but I, I can't pull that guy's real name off the top of my head. Yeah, he's a cat. He's a big-time character actor, that guy. Yeah, and there's certainly, is he a British character actor? And I think, obviously, a lot of this was filmed in Britain as well. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the sound scene stuff was filmed in Britain, so... I think that that's, he must have been around from that area. Yeah, that would make sense because they filmed in Pinewood for Batman and they were able to get him for that. Star Wars also was filmed in Britain. So, yeah, maybe yeah. That, that's how they got him. And I'm sure George Lucas probably called up the people he worked with, with in Star Wars and you know, probably pulled some strings that way. It, would only... it could be a union thing that they have to have a certain amount of people from Britain uh, working on British movies. Or, sorry, movies that are filmed in Britain. 
I, I think you're right. That's the only thing that would make sense is that that's why. But I always I, I recognize the guy, but I always forget that he's in the movie because it's so fast. He's in the very beginning and then at the very end. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And also his students really do love him. Like the one girl paints the eyes on her and she just she's like fiending over him, which I thought was weird. I'm like, ah, is that what a, a is that like what a man was supposed to look back like in the 1930s? Was he like a scholar? <laughs> <laughs> And did you notice that one of the last students to leave the actual um, class leaves an apple for him on his desk? Everybody loves him. And then Brody comes in and takes the apple and puts it in his pocket. <laughs> yeah. Like, did, what do, you, do you mind the fact I've heard people, because I think you actually said that they go too silly with The Last Crusade. Do you like what they did to his character by the time they get to The Last Crusade? Because he's not like that in this movie. He's more serious in this. Do you know what? I didn't actually think about it until I seen him being raised by people about how they kind of ruined the character by the time it got to the third one. And do you know what? I actually tend to agree with him because he's definitely not that type of character in the first movie. No, he's high. He's definitely much more of an intelligent. I mean, he should be look for where he works. And then they kind of turned him into a bumbling idiot. Oh, got lost in his own museum, huh? <laughs> yeah, and um, I do like that bit in the third one where Indiana Jones says to the Nazis, "You'll never find Marcus. He speaks twenty-five languages. He's blend in. If any, if anything, he's already back in the states with a diary." And then it cuts to the next scene. He's like, "Hello, does anybody speak English here?" Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was funny. I didn't think that was a bad type of thing to do in that movie. There, I think it was just all the other stuff, like um, at the end on the horse, and he's all oh, and all this. And I, I, I think it might be a bit too snapstick. By the time they got to um, Last Crusade, but once in the making of Last Night on the Blu-ray, there was a lot more, I think, snapsticky stuff going on, which they didn't end up putting in readers. Yeah, because they definitely edited out a bunch of that stuff. You're right, because they did show a bunch of deleted scenes. So I guess maybe that was the original intention. I mean, I haven't gone back and looked at what like original serials were like, but I imagine that they probably did have a lot of slapstick humor of the time. That was like the big deal yeah. was that was the main thing for humor and comedy back then was slapstick, not really yeah. like quirky dialogue or anything like that. So it would make sense to include it, but it feels like definitely Last Crusade is the most lighthearted leaning into the comedy this yeah. one has like a balance, and then Temple of Dune is like the most dark. Yeah, like one of my favorite parts of Temple of Dune, to be honest, talking about slapstick, was when Indiana Jones is going to fight uh, the head leader of the Thuggy Cult, the head henchman. <laughs> and Indy lifts the sledgehammer and swings it at him, and he catches it and punches Indy, but then he throws it over his head, and it hits one of the thuggy guards in the head, and just knocks him out, and he just falls straight down. Yeah, I, I'm like a child with that stuff, too. I still laugh when somebody falls down. I don't know why, but I guess it's just something it's, that still holds... Just, it just hits him straight, and it's the it's the noise, it's the boom, but he just drops straight. straight. He's dead. <laughs> I do like that. I think that's actually the same sound effect they use in um, Star Wars when they re-edited it when the stormtrooper hits his head. <laughs> oh yeah, the uh, the stadium door doesn't look pretty up. He hits his head. Yeah, which in the original yeah. cut, um, that was no noise because that wasn't supposed to happen. But they just leaned into it and they added a sound effect. I always think that's funny. Uh, they actually yeah. always use the same screams, him and George Lucas. I, I They have a name for it, like the Weinchiser scream or something like that. No, it's a, the Will, William Scream. Scream. William Scream. Is that it, it's a very famous sound bite that a lot of movies used back like, in the day, in the 30s or something, in the 40s. 
And if you notice, there's a lot of like movie makers from the 80s and 90s use that screen. Like the William screen is also in Batman Returns. Yep. Tim Burton used it as well. Ah! Yeah. There's two very famous screams. There's this one, and then there's another one that gets used a lot that um, they use in the movie Broken Arrow. I One character falls out of their train. So there's two very famous screams I feel that like they use in a lot of movies, but the one in this one, I they, you could Steven Spielberg uses it a lot. Yeah, and that was one thing I was going to actually talk about was the sound effects in this movie. And you're saying about reflecting, like we said, said reflecting about the, the serials back in the day. Like the over the top punches and stuff like that. I never get tired hearing that sound. <laughs> no. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. I love the sound effects for these movies. Yeah, they're over the top when you punch somebody. You know, it doesn't make a sound like that, but it works so well for these movies. That's that's what makes these movies stand out is they don't take themselves too seriously. They're yep. supposed to be paying homage to something and all the stuff that they take from that. It just all works perfectly. It leans right into the set design of everything. I, you, I just love all of that. This, the sound effects are perfect for that. I love the sound effects. And then we haven't talked about it. If we're going to talk about audio. The John Williams score. We call him Dr. Jones. What? Amazing. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. One of the most iconic scores of all time. But even just all the kind of other melodies and motifs he does throughout the movie, like, you know, the, the, the arc motif and Marion's theme. Um, me personally, I think Pamela Doom is a better score. But this is still superb. Yeah, I and you were the one who told me that John Williams doesn't go back and listen to his previous scores, so he kind of just recreates. So it is funny because I was listening to all three scores this week since he told me that. How all three scores they have similarities, but they are very different from each other. Yeah, definitely. Like um, Campbell of Doom soundtrack, I could just listen from start to finish. It's amazing. Every single track is absolutely amazing to me. Whereas this one here, it's a wee bit more kind of. So maybe use more atmospherically, I think. Yeah, that's not. It, it, it's definitely one that's a little tougher to listen through because it just has a lot of like. It, it works better in the movie than it does if you're listening to yes. it on its own because, like you said, it's really building towards the atmosphere in the moments of certain scenes that kind of like make it sound like darker or scarier. Or you know, we do get it the is. adventurous themes. Obviously, the Indiana Jones theme is one of the most famous themes ever. It's even been used in other movies just besides this. It's probably up there in John Williams, like as far as like his tracks go. It's probably right up there with Jaws. I'd say nothing's up there with Jaws. <laughs> well. I know that Jaws is number one, <laughs> and then it's a big gap to number two. <laughs> yes, of course, everybody knows the Indiana Jones thing. Yeah. As much as I think, I personally still think E.T. is the best score overall, but there's no, like, E.T. theme that, like, if someone hurt, I feel like the regular person can pull Indiana Jones or pull Jaws out. I don't think they could pull E.T. Yes. I don't think they could pull Close Encounters. Maybe Jurassic Park in certain moments. But again, I don't think that has like the most. I think that Jaws is obviously is most iconic. It's probably the most iconic piece of score in history. But Indiana Jones has a pretty iconic theme too. Um, I think the thing is with the Jaws theme is that people know the Jaws theme and know what it's from. Who maybe haven't even seen the movie. Whereas I don't think too many people would know the Indiana Jones theme or what it's from unless they've seen the movie. That's a good but point. That's just my personal opinion or observation. <laughs> I think you're 100% right on that, actually, because I knew the Jaws theme before I saw Jaws. That's not even untrue. I remember being in first grade. I hadn't seen Jaws yet, but people show me on the piano. Like I told you, like if school, like in the music room, they had a piano 
and they would go over and play the two keys like oh this is a theme from jaws well i don't know if they said the theme but they said this is jaws so i knew that before i had ever seen jaws but i didn't know indiana jones till i'd seen indiana jones but jones is totally iconic and i think that's what i like more about um the second school more than the first is that even though you've got the motifs for marion and you've got the motif for um the art i just think all the other tunes and themes that he does for all the other parts of Campbell of Doom, I just really like them a lot more than I do the, the themes for the first movie, but it's a top, top score. I agree with you. Actually, out of the three scores I listened to on Apple Music, I thought Temple of Doom was the best of the three scores. So I do agree with you on that. I also think Temple of Doom has the best opening. So that's where Temple of Doom always gets the, the nod for me. And I think in Temple of Doom, that white tuxedo is an homage to, uh, call me crazy, but uh, Goldfinger. I would agree. Right? Because it's very similar yeah, 100% looking. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. It looks just too similar to what, uh, you know, Sean Connery is wearing in that movie that he changes into in the opening. So, and they're both opening scenes before the credits. So, it just kind of makes sense. Yeah, but I think that's where maybe we all know that Indiana Jones is inspired by James Bond. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's where they get this whole idea that he's on a mini adventure before he goes on his main adventure. Just yep. so happens that the mini adventure in Campbell of Doom leads him to the main adventure, whereas the mini adventure in Raiders it just pretty much introduces us to Balak and it introduces us to Indiana Jones and it just shows us what type of man Indiana Jones is. I mean, everything you need to know about Indiana Jones is in that scene. But one of the things as well that actually um, from the main here as well, what I love about that opening scene too, John as well, very little dialogue. You could actually sit and watch that whole opening scene with the sound off, and you know what's happening. Oh, yeah. That will make him like... Yeah, I'm pretty sure that Indiana Jones, even his lines of dialogue he delivers are kind of like quiet, like he's like spiders. Like, it's not even like he speaks too much. Like, nobody really does. There's a little bit of that, but you're right. The score is, the atmospheric score is kind of moving that scene along. That's the sound mm-hmm. that's really moving the movie along at that point. Yeah, and it's just really, Last Crusade kind of did something similar with his childhood Indiana Jones. But here, we're finding out everything we need to know about Indy just through visuals. Like, we know about, now we know about the yeah. hat. We know about the whip. We know all about everything. We know about him, you know, what he does for a living. Or, I guess, yeah. Hobby? I don't know how to describe it. I guess he gets paid by the uh, the college regardless. I, I think they're paying for these adventures. You know, we know everything that we need to know about Indy here. We know about his satchel. Everything is all there in the opening sequence. Uh, I love it, it. You know, but you're right. We don't. You don't need dialogue for that. Well, he does say when he's in, in the university to Marcus that he knows where the idol is and he needs something like, what did he say? $3,000. He does say And he wants it from the university, but he had something else. I don't know what it was he had on his desk. And he says, but Marcus, we, I, we could get $5,000 for this. Get me the money and I'll go and get the item. It's funny. So just... that's probably how he kind of funds these adventures. <laughs> I mean, he's willing to risk it all because that's why he brings the gun with him. Oh, yeah. He knows that some of these people he's dealing with, they're not messing around. I mean, especially what happened like in the opening sequence, and it's funny because he just does, and he doesn't even get it. It, it. It's nuts how that works out for him. He has just such bad luck. He always loses the items. He got this whole trip a, a complete waste, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, and I know that when he's actually um, when he says to Melina, Melina says uh, he says, "Give me the whip." Melina says, "Give me the idol. I give you the whip." And he's like, "You haven't got much pain." So he throws him the idol, and then he just says, "See you later, senor," and drops the whip. 
But see when he jumps across and he's got the vein and you see that kind of smell and then it starts to kind of like pull out. Yeah. I mean, he's always in these near-death situations. <laughs> they do build up the tension really well because, it. I mean, Temple of Doom is the one where I'm like, I can't believe they even escaped. <laughs> With the room closing in and everything like that. Uh, yeah, and then eventually, but then when Billy comes in, she stands on it and starts again. Oh, I know. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Poor short round man. He's just along for the ride in that situation. But <laughs> oh, short round comes yeah. to you. Yeah, I mean, and now look at short round. But if you compare him and Harrison Ford, only one of them has an Academy Award right now. If you can believe that. Yep. Who would have thought? Exactly. Kiwi Kwam. Missed the trick with uh, that actor. Because they could have made a fifth indie movie with the two of them reuniting again, or they could have done a spinoff with Short Round. I I have a theory that that would have been Dial the Destiny, or they would have brought him in for something had they not filmed that years ago before everything everywhere all at once, because it was actually filmed before that movie was filmed. So mm-hmm. I, I think if he would have won the Academy Award and then they filmed it, I think they would have found a way to get him in there because they bring him back in. Yeah, because his name value has never been more higher than it is right now. And him and yeah. you've seen the picture of him and India, well, in, him and Harrison Ford reuniting behind the scenes. Yeah, I've seen the pictures and some of the videos as well because there was different kind of premieres for the fifth Indiana Jones movie, and I, I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, I thought it was awesome. The especially the way Kiwi Quam uh, tells the story of like. Harrison Ford saw him. He's like, I don't think he's gonna remember him. And he smiled and he pointed and he went short round. <laughs> and he's like, Indy. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. I love that story. I think that's great. It's, it's brilliant, especially it's since brilliant. Harrison Ford is known as, known as like such a grump. It's nice to see that he's got a little bit of a heart to him. You know? Yeah, and he still remembers him even when he was a kid. Well, obviously he's not gonna forget him. But I see for him to be in that movie forty years ago, or whatever, and being so young, uh, for him to be acknowledged. Him like that, he would have acknowledged him like that even if he hasn't hadn't had his recent success. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. I just want to give a, a shout out to my brother Michael. Okay, he tells me that he actually watches. Hi, uh, Michael. <laughs> okay, so Michael was actually watching Raiders of the Lost Ark not too long ago, um, and he dropped me a message and he asked me the question. He says, "What was in the ark in the end? What was the end about?" Uh, so I just was wondering, John, when we're going to ask Bob, what do you think the end was about? What happened there? Well, I, obviously it's biblical, and, uh, you know, the Raiders, it's the Lost Ark, so you know what it ties into. Um, but what is actually in there? I, I've never really thought about it. I always kind of chalked it up like to the same thing like as Pulp Fiction, whatever the hell is in that briefcase that shines a light. But I assume that it's something that, no human eyes are supposed to lay eyes on. And that's why the indie tells her to like, don't even look at it. Like he must know exactly what it is. And it just melts him in that incredible effect, by the way, again, done practically, Amazing. but I, it has to be somebody's soul, right? Like, but who's, or is it multiple souls? Like, that's the only thing I can think of. Like what is in there? It has to be something tied to that. Some, you know, I'm not too familiar like with everything biblical to know exactly like what it's even tied to. Do you have an idea, or do you know? <laughs> well, I, I'm actually not a very religious person. Well, me I, neither. <laughs> I, I actually, yeah, I actually think that it's the the wrath of God. I think it's the power of God. It, it, it shouldn't have been open, and not only that, it's being opened by evil people. So, what actually, in my opinion, what shot out of it was the power of God, and it killed him. 
Oh, okay, that makes sense, because you do see the lights outside the cave and everything shooting up in the sky. It's definitely something that you're not supposed to see as a human being. As a human being, it's way too powerful for you. It's something that, you know, maybe something you could handle after death. But, again, as somebody who doesn't know too much about religion, I I can't answer that. You know, like, obviously, I understand a lot more about The Last Crusade and what the big MacGuffin is in that movie in comparison to The Lost Ark. Yeah, and the thing is as well that Indy says to Marion, don't look in it. So people have asked the question, how did Indy know? Now, I've always assumed that he kind of like gives us a a pat talk at the start of the movie about the Ark and about the Ten Commandments and about Moses. So I've always just assumed, you know, he's just knowledgeable about this. I mean, he knew how to do everything, like where to put the stick, how the light's supposed to hit it. So he probably has a great idea of what's in there. And I actually read the novelization a few months ago, and it was the shaman, the shaman who looks at the medallion and says, come here, take a look at this. In the novel, he tells them, if you, don't, if you ever open the ark, don't look into it. So this shaman seems to know an awful lot. <laughs> but he's also the one that tells them what the markings mean, doesn't he? And they ever say about the medallion, about the size of the staff. Because when Hook um, burns his hand, on the um, medallion. Um, he has one side. And yep. that's why they're digging in the wrong place. Yep. I actually love that scene, by the way. <laughs> it burns his hand like that. Uh, that, whole... that whole scene in the bar is brilliant. Uh, and he's over the bar and he says, uh, Whiskey. <laughs> I love that, actually, and how they're drinking. I think they were drinking Johnny Walker, actually. Uh, that whole scene is great. That whole fight scene, they're having fun. They're drinking while they're fighting, and then they go through the wall. Ugh, man, I think yeah. that scene is... And then, obviously... I'm your goddamn partner! I love that line. I love that line delivery. Uh, right at the end, and the way it just feeds out into the next scene, man. Yeah. Uh, that's, I love the way they end that scene. Even how Indiana Jones shows up to start that scene with the, the shadow yeah. on the wall. The silhouette, yeah. 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 Uh, it's just beautiful. It, it, it's such a good scene. And, you know, listening to that scene with great sound as well, we talked about the sound earlier, the sound of the machine guns going off and everything, it's, it's really good. Which also, I wanted to ask you as well, so this ties in with we were talking about the medallion, talking about the arc. There's something that I wanted to touch on here, which I wanted to dispel, okay? Get it out there. I'm right. sick of hearing about this. All right. I'm ready for it. Saved by the Bell. Have you ever heard this about... There's a show called... It's an American show. I've never watched it before. Oh, I think it's called Saved by the Bell. When I wake up in the morning and the long gets out of water, I don't think I'll ever make it on time. Oh, well, There's a character in that that actually said that Indiana Jones doesn't make any difference to the uh, outcome in Raiders of the Lost Ark. So you could take his character out of the movie and the same thing would have happened. Nazis would have found the ark, they would have opened it, and it would have killed them off. I disagree with that. I agree with you. I think I, that doesn't make sense. They wouldn't have found it because you were completely right. Because he only has one half of it, and they were digging in the wrong yes. place. And that desert is freaking huge, so there's no way they would have found it. They wouldn't have known what to do with the staff because only Indy knew how to do that. Indy did all the legwork in that temple that yes. nobody else could have figured out. No one else knew what to even do because, I mean, you had to be perfect. The right time of the day had to hit the sun perfectly at that exact spot to point out exactly where to dig, and you couldn't do that without yeah. actually having Indiana Jones's knowledge. So I do agree that you were definitely right. And whoever said that, it was probably, and I do know Saved by the Bell. I thought you were going to say that somebody was Saved by the Bell in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so we can punch. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I was like, I was waiting for you to say, I'm, I'm thinking about it. Was there something like that? But no, I have seen, I, yeah. I've watched the whole series a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. Has it hold up? Seen it. It, it, it is all over here. I've seen it all other days, but I've never watched it. But it annoys me because I've seen people say this and then I've responded and they have said to me that the Nazis would have found it anyway. Should have been digging. It was only a matter of time. But the thing was, was that the Nazis only started digging when they had half the medallion. And the thing was, was that they didn't know where the medallion was. They actually followed Indiana Jones because he knew, Indiana Jones knew where the medallion was. He knew Marion had it, but nobody knew where Marion was, but he did. So they followed him to get the medallion. Yeah. And, they, and they only got half of it because he burned his hand. Now, when I read the novelization, it explains in it that they actually followed him to, to the bar. Yeah. So if they hadn't even had half the medallion, they wouldn't have even started digging. Because as you say, the desert was massive. They had a general idea. They found, they found the map room. But they, they didn't know the size of the staff because they only had half of the medallion. So they weren't going to start digging until they had that information. Because it would have been wasted. Yeah, no. I 100% agree. I I actually kind of feel... If I was Indy, I'd be a little bit more bitter than, I, than he really plays it off. Because he's doing all the work. And Bella just comes in and steals everything that he does. <laughs> all the time he like lets indy do all the legwork all the research and then like he's supposed to be like his compat not companion but like um competitor competitor essentially in the same exact field but yeah. i don't ever see him actually being knowledgeable in this field i always just see him no. capitalizing and basically just stealing from all the work that indiana jones does <laughs> no and he's getting all the credit so at the start indy does all the leg work with San diego he's got the map mm -hmm. right he, he goes through. He goes through all the booby traps, you know. And even when um, Melina, yeah, he tries to steal it from him, but Indy gets it back again. And as soon as he gets out, Belloc takes it. And it's the same with the arc. He actually finds the arc. And I love when he's actually trapped down there with the snakes. Yeah, and classic. Belloc scene. says to him, "What are you doing down there? Or something, Doctor Jones? Or you're going to become one of your a relic?" What you're looking for, and he's like, "Oh, you son of a bitch!" <laughs> yeah, he does. He's like, "You son of a bitch!" Like, because he knows, like, that. Like, come on, like, you were always taking advantage of my work. It's almost <laughs> like he's following him around and just waiting for him to actually discover something, just so he could steal it and take the credit. Because yeah. I, I, but yet somehow he must actually be decent because he's got a lot of people he's working with. I just, I don't see it in the movie. I just see him just taking advantage of Indy's work. Yeah, well, in the in the novelization. Uh, Hitler actually recruits Balak personally to find the art form. Ah, I didn't actually know that. See, that makes sense then. This yeah, is... in the actual novelization. So I think a novelization back then is usually they get an early draft of the screenplay and then they would adapt it from that. Um, so a lot of this stuff is probably in the screenplay and the streaming it. Remember, we don't need this. And this explains this here. There's a, there's a lot more scenes like that in it. Like it's, it's whole, in these whole kind of like uh, journey to Marion's bar lasts a lot longer than what it shows in the movie when it kind of fades from his own home to the bar uh, when he walks into the shadow. So there's there's a whole bit missing there in the movie of him traveling. And also, like it even explains as well in the novelization that Marion is actually attracted to, to, 
Bella. Yeah, I and she's considering actually going with him. That's why there's all this in the movie about him saying, "That's my woman, Romaine. She come with me." All this. <laughs> I actually, that's another thing. I love that their little relationship in this. I actually kind of, you kind of like him in that one scene. You're like, kind of like, oh, you know, he's kind of misunderstood. He's got, he's clearly grew up on some kind of liquor site, whatever the hell he's drinking. He's like, it's my yeah. family's recipe and it's supposedly really strong. I'm like, I'm curious what that tastes like. It looks like, like a, yeah. a fancy liqueur or something. <laughs> I just get a funny feeling of it. Here's something like uh, Aftershock or something. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I mean, whatever the hell it is. I mean, he could hold his own drinking, too, but, like, they were, like, bonding. I actually kind of like that. You never see that, like, the villain. Like, he's not, like, yeah, he's the villain, and he's an asshole, but he's actually kind of, like, it kind of seems also like a regular guy, if that makes sense. Like, he's not, like, a, he's not, like, the other guy, the other Nazi that was just, like, an over-the-top villain. He's just, like, yeah, he's a dick, <laughs> you know? He's just really taking yeah, he's, he's not even a Nazi. No. He's, you know, all the other guys are Nazis, and they're interested in the arc or you know what I mean? He's he's doing it because they kind of threaten him into doing it, but he's also like and he got this curiosity about what the art is, yeah, uh, what it actually stands for, and I think that's why he actually talks the Nazis into you know we should open this first. You don't want to bring it back, and there's just they say there's just sand in there, yeah, and when they open it, there is actually sand. So it's kind of like God has played a trick on them as well. See, you know what? Then that prob- you're probably exactly right. Then it is something with God. He probably can manipulate what's inside of it. Yeah, because as soon as he opens it, he puts his hand on the sand, and then the Nazi starts laughing, and then that's when all the the light starts coming out of it. Yeah, my God! And then the melting, the face melting thing really can't be understated at how awesome that looks. I mean, it's held yeah. up really well. Yeah, which is basically just candle wax. Yeah, right. Is that that's what it is, right? And they just molded yes. it. And that's the second or third time we hear that really cool, like underneath effect, sound effect that I really like. It's like a, almost like a, a scream. I really like that sound effect. They use it a couple times in the movie. It's not very loud, but it's still it's very noticeable, and I really like it. Um, yeah, so that's why I wanted to read the novelization because when I watched them again, I was like, I, I knew there would be more information in them that would explain some of these things because, like I said, you don't think about one of our other podcasts. People want to be spoon fed things now. There's no kind of nothing left to kind of like, you know, the imagination to fill in the fill in the veins. You know, everybody's kind of matter of fact about everything. And um I was like, oh, I want to read the novelization to try and see if it gives me any extra information to explain some of these things. So because my original suspicions were, you know, are they correct? I would actually be interested in reading that novelization too, because it does leave some information out for sure that you don't get and you want some questions answered. I mean, it doesn't necessarily affect the movie because like we've said, it's a serial. So it's just supposed to be telling a contained story. And then eventually it's just another Indiana Jones adventure. That's why you can actually, you don't have to watch these in order. You could just watch them at any time. If you want to go right now and just watch Kingdom of Crystal Skull, I don't know why that'd be the one you'd pick. But if you wanted to go do it, you can because it's just Indiana Jones on another adventure. See, that's the thing too, which is why I said earlier about it, don't take these returning characters. Because if you did sit down and watch Keaton with Crystal Skull first, you may have to explain to someone, oh, well, you know who that is? She's in the first one, and they yep. three lovers, and, you know, you don't have to do that with any of the original trilogy. And also, almost like we were just trying to tie everything up in a nice new bowl by the end of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. He gets married, and he's got a son, he's going to live happily ever after. Whereas, I think a lot of people will agree that I'm just playing off into the sunset at the end of the last crusade. It's just a perfect ending for that type of character. You know, we didn't need to see him settling down. 
Because yeah. in your own imagination, you can imagine Indiana Jones still going to continue and have lots of adventures. The yeah. payoff in the third movie was that he, he reconciled his relationship with his father. That was the whole meaning of that, that film, that story, you know? Mm-hmm. I agree. I wish they would have uh, ended it in three. Uh, personally, I mean, I when I rewatched Kingdom of the Crystal Skull recently, I didn't hate it as much as I did back in two thousand and eight. It's also still unnecessary. And then the la- uh, Dial of Destiny tries to undo what they do in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Now that makes that movie even more frustrating because <laughs> even though Dial of Destiny I didn't think was that bad, it's just you know again it's still nothing compared to raiders temple of doom and last crusade it's like i say like it's it is a nostalgia nostalgia goggles on here with that original trilogy you to me you can go back time, time again and watch them and enjoy them and they got like myself dad it's got a tape i can enjoy them with her now you, you know what i mean whenever i watch raiders or Campbell of Doom, or Lost Crusade. I have no desire to watch Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah, I only did that for the review on the channel. I was very content with never watching Kingdom of the Crystal Skull again. Although, I'm really glad I did, because on the 4Ks, uh, that's where the extras disc was with all the bonuses and all the uh, making of documentaries, was packed in with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and I didn't realize that. So when I reviewed the when I reviewed the 4Ks on the channel, I was knocking them all for not having extras, and that's because they buried the extras on Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> See, that's the way they got people to buy. It's like if you want to buy this, you have to buy the full four because we got the special features on the worst film. Exactly, <laughs> they really boxed you in there. They're like, that's the way that you're gonna watch this movie. I don't care if you don't want. To. Yeah, we like aliens here. <laughs> yeah, like I, don't, I don't particularly think it's a bad movie. It's just not as good as the first three. Exactly. Just, I, I talk about holding up. It just doesn't hold up either with the CGI. Exactly. It's not. It's not as bad as people made it. Even I made it out to be bad back in two thousand eight. I was one of those people like, come on. But that's because I love the original trilogy, and that was just what everybody was talking about was how bad it was. But, you know, now it's been 15 years. You look back and you're like, mm, we were all a little too hard on that movie. It's not that bad. It's just not yeah. as good, you know? Well, I actually did. At the time, I didn't see it in the cinema. I seen it on DVD. And I didn't think it was that bad at the time. I was like, oh, it's okay, that movie. But uh, as time goes on, you go back and you go, well, if I'm going to watch, even though I've seen the first three more than the fourth one, I said and think, I'm going to spend two hours watching the Lee movie. I'll just watch one of the original trilogy. Yeah, I mean, I watched four this year, and I, I think that's enough for a while. I think next year, because I will watch these every year, I'll just watch the original trilogy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the monkeys, though, in A Kingdom of the Crystal Skull are ridiculously bad. That's That scene, that's the one that does it for me, where I'm like, that's just, come on, really? You think that this guy's going to be swinging with the monkeys, and he's just perfectly fine? That's a little too far. <laughs> I know, people compare it to when and they jumped out of the train with the uh, raft, but no, it's... The monkey thing's a different level. Yeah, that's not comparable. It is a little far-fetched in Temple of Doom how he's able to survive on the raft. I say it every time, but at least he's landing in water, and most people can survive at least a little bit landing in water. So it's like, I'm not going to say that that's out of the realm of possibility. It's just a little far-fetched. But swinging with monkeys, CGI monkeys, or surviving a nuclear bomb, find a little more hard to believe. Exactly. Unless it, it was always kind of cartoonish, but it didn't have a hard edge. And that in the fourth became a wee bit too much cartoonish, cartoonish 
Yep, I agree, 100%. I think we actually, uh, we think we covered everything on this one, to be honest. So anyway, guys, thank you for joining us here with us on another episode of the Let's Talk Podcast. And we're talking about Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And if you guys like this, let us know in the comment section. And we will do Temple of Doom next if you do. If you don't, we'll know. And then we will do something else. So let us know in the comment section below. And while you're down there, make sure you guys like this video, subscribe to the channel, get out in those streets, tell your friends about us.